The scripture readings this morning are Acts 1, 1 through 8, and Acts 8, 26 through 40. Acts 1. In my first book, I told you, Theopolis, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until, he was, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he actually was alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the, when the apostles were there with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my, my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 8, 26. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Kadaki, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk alongside the carriage. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the sheep, shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, there is some water, why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop and then went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north at the town of Azotus. He preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea the word of the Lord. In his first book, Luke carefully recounted the story of Jesus, assuring his friend Theophilus in the heart of Rome 
that he could rely on what he'd been told. But a second, perhaps a more troubling question lingered. Was this story even for the likes of him? Theophilus was a Gentile. Jesus was a Jew. Not everyone welcomed the inclusion of Gentiles into the community of Jesus' followers. This question, whether to welcome Gentiles and under what conditions, was the defining issue for the earliest followers of Jesus. It hung in the air at their gatherings. It filled countless hours of debate. Much of the New Testament itself was occupied with this question, and that includes Luke's second volume, written to his friend Theophilus. The book of Acts tells the story of the early church, how the message about Jesus spread out from Jerusalem across the Roman Empire, ultimately to Rome itself, where it reached Theophilus. In Luke's first volume, the story moves toward Jerusalem as Jesus makes his way to the center of Jewish life in order to lay down his life for the world. In Acts, the story progresses out from Jerusalem as the message about Jesus crashes through one barrier after another. First, at Pentecost, a key language barrier is demolished when Aramaic-speaking followers of Jesus welcome Greek speakers into their midst. Next, a regional barrier is broken when persecution forces believers from Jerusalem into neighboring territories. Then, a major religious and ethnic barrier comes crashing down as Gentiles begin putting their faith in a Jewish Messiah and a mostly Jewish church debates whether to welcome them. A key figure in this debate is a man named Paul. Once an adversary of the church, Paul has a dramatic encounter with the risen Jesus, who gives him a new identity and a radical new mission, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul travels far and wide, taking the message about Jesus into modern-day Turkey then Greece, and finally to Rome. As each barrier comes crashing down, Luke emphasizes two things. One, this is not the work of human hands. This is God's spirit on the move. And two, more and more people are experiencing new life as a result. Well, this is the second week in our Immerse Messiah series, and I hope um, for those of you who are participating in the church-wide experience, uh, there are daily readings that go along um, throughout the New Testament. Over eight weeks, we're reading the entire New Testament in a reader's Bible format. And then there are small groups uh, gathering throughout the week, um, meeting to talk about the text. And I hope that for those of you who are participating in that, are finding it meaningful so far. You remember last week we began with Luke, and today we are talking about Acts. And so it goes from Luke to Acts. And we're not going to look at all of Acts. We're not even going to get to the Apostle Paul, but you will encounter his missionary journeys uh, this week as you read the text. Um, 
So Luke-Acts is, is a two-part volume written by Luke to Theophilus, this Roman official who's curious, perhaps, about whether or not, A, this Jesus story and everything that he believed in was true, and B, if he, as a Roman official, has a place in it, in this story. And so Acts opens up in a similar way as Luke addressing the recipient Theophilus. And it's the continuation of the story, and it asks the question, okay, well, what happens next? What happens after Jesus was raised and appeared to his disciples? What happens to all those people, the multitudes, and even the 12? Or actually, there's only 11 at this point. According to the first chapter of Acts, just before Jesus left his disciples, Uh, He said, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And he made it very clear that the apostles, that they were to wait and to do nothing until the Holy Spirit would come. Then he ascended out of their sight. The disciples were totally confused. They had no idea what was going on, as was their custom. And they just kept staring up at the clouds. Do you think he's coming back? Well, finally, a couple of angels appeared to say, what are you guys doing? Of course he's coming back. And so they sort of shrug their shoulders and they go back into the upper room and wait for the Spirit. They begin their time in that upper room uh, devoted to prayer. As they were told to wait, they devoted themselves to pray. But eventually, they got tired of praying because they all got up off their knees and they decided to call a congregational meeting. This is, this is the birth of the true Protestant tradition. <laughs> no more prayer, time to call a meeting. Um, and so, they have this meeting and Peter was the one who decides to speak up. This is the day of Pentecost, the morning of Pentecost, which we celebrate seven weeks after Easter in the spring. And he says this, Peter says, look, um, we've always been the 12, but there was that unfortunate thing that happened with Judas, so now we're the eleven. And we can't be the 11 because we've always been the 12. You know, we can't just like change something. We have a vacant office to fill. And so they cast lots, two ballots are taken, and the lot falls to Matthias. He's added to the apostles, and we never hear from him again. (laughs) So important was Matthias. About the time the clerk was enrolling uh, Matthias' name in the book of disciples, the Spirit decides to show up. And let me tell you, it was not a quiet experience. Um, All of a sudden, wind started to blow violently inside the room, pushing the disciples out of the upper room and into a world in desperate need of some good news. Flames started to appear, fires all over the place, even on their heads. I don't understand that. And they start speaking in languages that they didn't know five minutes ago, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. And only the Spirit can bring that restoration and that unity and those extraordinary gifts. People from different nations heard the disciples speaking their language, and the text says that all were perplexed and amazed 
by what these disciples were able to do, some said to one another, what does this mean? And with that question, what does this mean? That is the, the, we have seen the first mark of a spirit-filled church. You want to know when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a community and gives it a future? Things get confusing. Things get confusing. The Spirit is disruptive. It was so confusing that some of the people said the disciples had too much to drink. They must be drunk. Peter's response is, that couldn't be. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) The implication is obvious. As long as the disciples, who were all knew each other and they all spoke the same language and they were all friends and they were all huddled in those four walls of that upper room avoiding any changes to their tight little community. There was no Christian church. The church wasn't born until Christ came back through the Holy Spirit and confronted the church with the world around it. Pentecost is supposed to remind us that the church doesn't just have a mission. The church doesn't just have missionaries who we support or mission teams that help us uh, with mission work. The church is a mission. It is the mission of Christ uh, for completing his work of redemption in the world. And if that doesn't overwhelm us with confusion, then we're probably not paying attention The first area of confusion for this new family that was expanding, they were just followers, now the Spirit comes, making them a family. The first question of confusion is who gets to be a part of this family that is expanding? We, We often speak of the church as a family. It has children, it has adults, it has seniors, it has singles and marrieds. All brothers and sisters, all of us brothers and sisters in the family of God the Father. That's what the church is. But we have to remember that, that this family is unlike any family that we've ever had. Professor Stanley Hauerwas, a retired theologian of Duke Divinity School, at the beginning of his semester would always read a letter to his students. Um, it was written by concerned parents to a political official. The parents in this letter are complaining that after their son received the best education, the best schools, the best opportunities, he has now become involved in a weird religious sect. The members of this sect keep calling upon him continually. They've given him a new strange set of friends and strange new vocabulary, and well, he's just different. Worst of all, he keeps squandering all his money on their projects. After reading the letter, Hauerwas then asks his students to identify the cult. Which cult is, are these parents concerned about? Some say the Moonies, some say Krishna, or some other group. As it turns out, the letter was written by third century Roman parents concerned about their son's conversion to the Christian church. 
From the time that Jesus first asked, who is my mother and my brothers and my sisters, but those who do the will of God the Father in heaven, the church has always existed as the other family in our lives. And in this other family, we're not bound together by blood, but by the waters of our baptism. One of the important roles of this other family is to challenge some of the things that we learned in our biological families, our families of origin. If you heard from your family of origin that you are not good enough, then you need this other family to tell you that you are the beloved child of God who is so pleased with you. Even, even if you had a wonderful family of origin, we still are challenged by some of the values in this other family. Let me give you an example. When our little family with two little girls at the time were in graduate school, often on Sunday afternoons we, would, um, we were in New Jersey and we would drive into the big city. Manhattan was about an hour and change away from Princeton and Sunday afternoons are the best day to drive in the city. And we would drive and find a place to park and we might walk around Central Park and hop on the subway and we would tell the girls if we were ever to get separated, go to a person in a uniform. Don't talk to strangers. Don't talk to strangers. Because when you're three, you expect everyone to be as loving and caring as your parents. Um, and so we had to keep saying, don't, don't talk to people uh, you don't know, sweetie. They might hurt you. It's a tragic necessity. It's a tragic necessity of our biological world, of our world in which we live in. It's a tragic necessity that parents have to teach children not to trust strangers. It's just good, responsible parenting. And that's exactly why we need this other family to teach us how to love the stranger as we grow. You know, actually throughout history, we've always mistrusted the stranger. That's why the early church needed so much help from the Holy Spirit in learning how to make room for the person who seemed to be different and strange to them. If you continue to read on in the book of Acts, we notice that one of the first struggles of this early community is the struggle between the Jewish church in Jerusalem, the Palestinian Israelite Jews, and the Greek-influenced Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, who were not from Israel, but had become followers of Jesus. This was still very much a movement within Judaism at the time. And about the time that they figured out these um, Jerusalem Israelite Jews, the purists, how, about the time that they figured out how to incorporate the Grecian Jews into their community, the church became persecuted by the Roman Empire and the group was scattered. The believers fled Jerusalem and they went in different places. And one of those believers, Philip, who we believe was one of the Grecian Jews, not to be confused with Philip the Apostle. He's one of the, this Philip is Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven chosen by the church as a deacon. Um, he goes to Samaria. The Samaritans, as you know, were not Jews, but they were like half 
cousins, like distant cousins, far removed. Um, they didn't worship in the right way or in the right place. They didn't read the right parts of the Bible. And so the, the Jews despised the Samaritans. They were religiously syncretistic. There were all sorts of issues. So the Jews despised the Samaritans, and typically they wouldn't even walk through their community, which is exactly why Philip decides to go there, because that's where he'll be safe. For the Romans looking for those Jewish followers of Jesus, they're probably not going to be in Samaria. So Philip's in Samaria, and while he's there hiding from Rome, the persecutors, he decides to do some preaching. And he does some preaching, and crowds of Samaritans believe and were baptized. They join the church. A couple leaders, Peter and John from Jerusalem, come over and, and give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so now the body of Christ, the church, the family of God, includes not only Hellenists, Grecian Jews, as if they weren't hard enough to assimilate, but even Samaritans. As Deacon Phil was trying to figure out how to explain this to the session back in Jerusalem, an angel of the Lord appeared and told him to hit the road again. And so he decides, uh, according to the angel's instructions, to take this wilderness road from Samaria to Gaza. And while he's on this road, waiting for God to show him the next person who he could share the gospel with and baptize, he sees an Ethiopian eunuch being driven in a chariot. There's so much mystery around this eunuch and how he got from where he was. You can see where Samaria is up in the north. Jerusalem is just south of Samaria, and then over southwest is Gaza. And so Philip is going from Samaria to Gaza, and he sees this Ethiopian eunuch who came from way down south, following that white line down the Nile where Ethiopia was. We don't know, maybe he took the river and then hopped on a chariot, or maybe went the chariot the whole way. All we know is that he came from a long, long way, and he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. A eunuch, if you don't know what a eunuch is, a eunuch was someone who was um, born male at birth and then castrated in order to serve a purpose um, in the royal family, in the royal court. And so this usually, the castration usually happens before puberty. It blocks the testosterone and it prevents the sex organs from developing. And so this was that eunuch. You could say he, perhaps by our terms, non-binary or gender non-conforming. Anyway, he's on his way back home where he served as the treasurer for the queen. So he's an important man. You could say he's the secretary of the treasury. We're not given his name, and we're forced to see him only as Philip did, by categories. He's black. He's a foreigner, and he's a eunuch, not even close to an Israelite. I'm thinking if I were in Philip's shoes, I would be saying to myself, are you sure about this, Lord? If they had a hard time with, this, with the Hellenists and then the Samaritans, they're really going to have a hard time with this one. The text tells us specifically that the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over to the chariot and join it. So filled with the Spirit, Philip runs over to the chariot. You kind of picture him like kind of running beside the chariot. And he's like, hey, 
what you're reading over there. It's a great conversation starter, you know. Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I? I mean, really? Like, I'm reading your Jewish text. I'm from Ethiopia. How in the world am I supposed to understand this text? Unless someone guides me. So Philip hops into the chariot, and they go along, and they start talking about this scripture text. The text that he was reading was a Jewish text from Isaiah 53, from the Hebrew Bible. And it says he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can imagine his future? Who can talk about his generations to come? The eunuch says, uh, uh, who is this talking about? And that's the eunuch's first question to Philip. Why do you think the eunuch was so interested in this passage about one who was humiliated without a future of generations in his bloodline. According to Hebrew law, in Deuteronomy 23, a eunuch was not even allowed in the temple for worship, not even allowed in the holy places. Remember, he had just come from the temple. He went there to worship, but they wouldn't let him in. You, you, they wouldn't even let him in as far as the Gentile, in the outer Gentile courts. He traveled all that way to the temple to worship, but was stuck outside because he wasn't good enough. Imagine coming to church one Sunday morning only to discover that you're not good enough to get in. There's something wrong with you. You have to stand outside and ask people as they leave, well, what was it like in there? because you're hungry for some grace too. How, how, was, how was the music today? What did they sing about? Did the preacher talk about depression or did she talk about doubt or did he talk about failure or disease? Was there any word from God that would help me? My hunch is that if we are paying attention to the hard truth of our own lives, and to the reality of just whose house it is that we have wandered into, we would all be wondering, well, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? None of us are clean enough, good enough, or whole enough to join this family. When you look around at others who look so good, you think, well, she belongs here, but not me. I don't have a great family like that one in that pew over there. I don't even have anyone to love, haven't for years. I'm not a eunuch, but I might as well be. Uh, how can I fit in here? I'm not even sure I believe all the things that the church believes. I'm positive that I can't make my life right because I'm in too deep and there have been too many mistakes. If everyone knew the truth about me, they'd toss me out of here. Trust me on this, everyone in our, the deepest corners of our hearts, everyone is saying amen right now, everyone. No one is in the Father's family by rights except for the Son and the Spirit who binds us into the relationship that the Son has with the Father. So as Philip begins to interpret Isaiah 53, who is this one who has been despised, 
a chapter that describes the coming Messiah as the suffering servant. He relates this person to Jesus Christ. Now, we've heard this done so many times that we're used to it by now. But this is the first time in the New Testament that anyone has ever done this. You can see the lights going on in Philip's own mind as as he's making the connections between Isaiah's writings and what he knew about Jesus. You know, Jesus was also despised and rejected of men. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, but by his stripes we are healed. And come to think of it, he didn't have any children. There's no posterity, no future bloodline of generations for him either, just like you, Mr. Treasury, Treasurer. But as our Messiah, the Savior, he has created a new family that has room for all of us. The eunuch was so thrilled to hear this. He wanted to join Jesus' family right then and there. Look, there's water right over there, he says to Philip. What's to prevent me from getting baptized? Notice Philip didn't say, well, we have to apply with the session in Jerusalem. Nope, there it is. Um, Some translations of this text, uh, here's one depiction of, of this, and there's a few of those. Some translations of this text include verse 37. Most of our modern Bibles don't have verse 37. So it goes from Acts chapter 8, verse 36, and it skips 37 and goes right to 38. And when Philip, or when the eunuch says, what is to prevent me from being baptized? Verse 37 in the ancient manuscripts says this. Philip says, if you really believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's 837. That's the only condition that the eunuch needed to have to join the church of Jesus Christ. And that's the only condition that we have to join this church as well. Um, In the 56th chapter of Isaiah, if you were to just read three chapters forward from the text that the eunuch was reading on that wilderness road, the prophet goes on to talk about some of the changes and describe some of the changes that this Messiah will bring to this family of God. In that day, it says in Isaiah 56, the foreigner will no longer be separated In that day, the eunuch, the unclean eunuch who loves me shall have a name written in my house and my covenant, which shall be better than a thousand sons and daughters, will be remembered forever. You belong to the family of God, every single one of you. It has nothing to do with your limitations your sins, or your hurts. It has nothing to do with the family that you had, and it certainly has nothing to do with your own righteousness. It has everything to do with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross where he was dying to restore you to his family. The only question, according to Philip, is 
do you believe this? Do you really believe it with all your heart? Lord God, we confess that like many of your earliest disciples, there is both a believer and an unbeliever living in each of our hearts. So we need your Holy Spirit to fully believe with all our hearts that we may enjoy our sacred place in your sacred family where at the very least there are no strangers. Amen.